tonight our guest speaker, Andrew Itson. Andrew currently serves as one of the preaching ministers for the Madison Church of Christ in Madison, Alabama, but I knew him when he was preaching at the Robertsdale Church of Christ in Robertsdale, Alabama, which was just across the county line from where I was in Pensacola, Florida, and for about three to four years. Okay, you better not leave because it's... Anyway, for three to four years, we, we uh, worked in communities close to each other, had the opportunity to exchange pulpits from time to time through our summer series programs and things like that. Uh, but Andrew is a fantastic communicator of God's Word, and I'm very excited that he gets to be here with us tonight. He has unique connections to this congregation. For instance, uh, one of our own, Aubrey Strickland, served as an intern with the Madison congregation this past summer, and uh, we also have uh, um, some who are related to other ministers on staff at that congregation, and of course, that's the region that Ben grew up in, and there's just so many connections. I love that about the church, how there are so many small connections that you make and find. Through, uh, through your experience with the church. Andrew is a graduate of Faulkner. He has a PhD from the University of the Cumberlands and uh, he has a wife, Lori Ann, and three children, Cruz, Cameron, and Dawson. Unfortunately, they couldn't be here with us this weekend, but we are so happy to have Andrew here to, to share these messages from God's word. And I'm gonna turn it over to him. Thanks, man. It is so good to be here tonight. I have been looking forward to this weekend for a while. I was able to go to dinner with several of the ministers. And what was neat is in that conversation, realizing there's so many people here that I know. And I was looking at that board that you have with every, all the families up there. Uh, there's a lot of folks that I, I recognize and I know, and it's, it's good to be here tonight. And uh, we absolutely loved having Aubrey with us. And uh, he was such a blessing and an encouragement uh, to our youth and they still talk about him, and mostly in a good way, and uh, we, we really, really do appreciate him, and we just, it's neat to feel and to know that when we help raise each other's kids together, that the difference that they're making in different places, that, that's how God designed it to be, and so know that all the little moments of encouragement that you've given him, but you're also giving other young men and women, it's going to be a blessing to them. And, and so I want to say thank you uh, for that. I absolutely love the theme that you have for this year for Buford, which is one. Because I know if there's anything that this world is craving and needs more than anything, whether they realize it or not, and that's unity. They need us to be unified, whether they realize it or not. But also one of the things I think we also know is that there's a lost and dying world out there that looks at the church as we're going to talk about Sunday in a higher way, whether we realize that or not. And, and so because of that, the way we treat each other and the way we see each other, it matters a ton. So this theme for this weekend and for the whole year is taken from this passage here in Ephesians chapter 4. And one of the things that you'll probably notice if you're like me, you have the little headings at the very top of each of your sections on your Bible. The, the heading before this section for mine is unity amongst the believers. See, because Paul understands something. That what we do in here has so much to do with what happens out there. That, that our Sundays are never meant to be disconnected from our Mondays. That if we can be unified and if we can be one, then it's going to make a big difference into this world. And so to, to describe this, what he starts mentioning is all these different things that to me, if growing up in the church, these are kind of like fundamental things and topics that we talk about. 
He said, there's one body and there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father all of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so tonight, the topic that we're going to cover is the one that's underlined there is one Lord. Now, why in the world would Paul have to let this group of Christians in this place called Ephesus know that there's one Lord? And what does it matter to me to even talk about this topic, one Lord, and what does it mean for me? Well, my goal for this whole weekend is to make every single one of these messages very practical to where maybe giving you a few simple things to hold on to, to take and to put in your life. But I also want to diagnose what happens behind the scenes. What is it at times that causes us maybe to be faithless? What is it that causes us to put other gods in our life and not have one Lord? What is it that causes us to be hopeless? And, and why at times do we find ourselves disconnecting from the body? Well, I don't know if it was Kyle's decision or whoever it was to pick one Lord as the first topic, but I'm grateful that they did because if we can get this one right, all the rest of them are going to take care of themselves. So why did Paul have to mention to the church in Ephesus one Lord? Well, when he writes this letter to this group of Christians in Ephesus, right in the middle of their city was what you see on the screen behind me. And that was the temple to the goddess Artemis. And Artemis had this temple that was in the city, and we're going to talk about this in just uh, in the next few lessons, that they would buy and sell outside of it. They would sell pottery, they would sell paintings, uh, they would sell their poetry, and they would stand on the streets and, and quote it and sing it. And people would buy those poems, they would buy those paintings. But one of the most purchased things outside the temple of Artemis was little bitty Artemises. Uh, you could buy an Artemis to put in your home, and what the goddess Artemis was, was this. She was the goddess of a lot of things. And if you go back into like Greek mythology and looking at goddesses and gods of the past, most of these goddesses and gods usually only focused on one thing. They were the god or the goddess of one thing. Well, she was the goddess of a lot of stuff. Uh, she was the goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of uh, vegetation, planting, growing uh, she was the goddess of hunting, and she was the goddess of fishing. Now, when you think about that, that's kind of a random combination of, of things to be a goddess over. And you're like, well, why in the world did they pick that one? Well, the same reason that at times we pick the gods that we do, that the gods that we put in our lives usually show up out of an area of distrust or maybe concern. So in their place where they lived in Ephesus, they were concerned about these four things. They wanted to grow their families. Family and, and having children was seen a, as, as a really big deal. The other thing was, just like most places during this time and age, they were living off the land. And if your family was going to eat, you were going to have to go hunt, you were going to have to go fish. I don't know if any of you grew up on a farm. My granddad uh, was a farmer, and my dad grew up on a farm. And he said that the day he couldn't wait for was the day he graduated so he could get out of there because... He was so tired of all of that work because it is hard work living and growing and, and being a farmer. And so I remember even as a kid when we go down to South Georgia and we would go visit my, my granddad, I remember one time looking out the window and noticing that he would walk up and down all the rows of those crops. 
And, and I asked dad, I was like, why does granddad always walk just up and down the rows of the crop? Is he looking at the plants, talking to them? What's he doing? Because I see him talking, but what's he doing? He said, oh, he's praying. I was like, well, what's he praying about? And he said, well, he's praying that God will send rain. He's, he's praying that these crops will grow because if these crops don't grow, we're not going to make a living. And so this is a big deal for him because you can't always afford the irrigation that it's going to take to make the plants grow. And, and by the way, now I start to see the connection with the goddess of fertility because my granddad had seven kids. So maybe that's the connection there between um, um, all of that. But anyway, so for, for my granddad, it was a huge, heavy concern that if these plants don't grow, I can't feed my family. And so what happened in Ephesus was this, that there were people that had concerns about daily living, providing for their family. And sometimes when the provision did not show up how they wanted it to show up, they did what we all do. They looked to something else. And so for them, what they looked to was Artemis. And so the Christians in Ephesus, here's what they were guilty of. And you might even remember when in the very book of Revelations, it says that the complaint about the church of Ephesus is they left their what? Their first love. Well, they were worshiping on Sundays. If you took role at the church in Ephesus, they were there, but they also had a little bit of Artemis in their life too. You know, because there was those parts of their life that God was not showing up in, and so they needed someone or something else, they thought. And so the reason why I want to mention that is to give us some context. When he says one Lord to them, what he's saying is, you don't need all these other gods in your life. That just because you can't wait for what you can't see, that doesn't mean you need to look towards something else. And so when I typed this out, by the way, I did not mean for it to rhyme, but I went with it. Um, but who we understand God to be, it does crush idolatry. But not understanding who God is to be causes insecurity. Now you're like, wait, what does that have to do with one Lord? Well, it turns out it has a lot to do with it. As you go through your Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you see people having idols in their life, different gods. Every single one of those texts, you'll find that they are dealing with some kind of insecurity, just like the people in Ephesus. That the reason why we're looking towards this God, because we're insecure, we don't know if the rain's going to come, and we don't know if God's going to grow my family. We don't know if God's going to give us the things that we need. And because of that insecurity, we choose to look to something else. See, I shared with you at the very beginning of this message that what my goal is is not just to say, hey, all right, you, you, in order to deal with the idols in your life, stop. Like, stop going to those places. Stop doing those things. Because if you're like me, and by the way, I had this lesson originally written from that standpoint, that anytime we talked about idolatry, or I have in the past, it was usually, well, just don't do that. Tear down those idols. Stop going to those places. Stop making this such a priority in your life. But we weren't really dealing with what causes me to put idols in my life, what causes me to put these other things before my God. And what you're going to find is that it is this word that we're going to talk about tonight, and it's insecurity. See, insecurity is that voice inside of us that whispers, that whether you hear it or not, that says, I don't feel like I'm whatever enough. I don't feel like I'm talented enough. I don't feel like I know enough. I don't feel like I'm a good enough mom. I don't feel like I'm a, a good enough parent. And, and I remember some of my buddies in Montgomery uh, a few years ago, they were sharing with me that they had just gotten involved in prison ministry. 
And what they do in this prison ministry in Montgomery is they, there's two prisons right near Montgomery. One of those is in Montgomery, one's in Wetonka. And what they do is they go and do worship services every single Sunday, but before the worship service, they sit around tables. And, and they sit around tables and they talk with these prisoners. And, and my buddy Joseph, one of the things that he was talking about, he said, you know, I gotta tell you, it was kinda interesting being in that position, uh, talking to prisoners and trying to think of what to say. Because for me, I, I'm, I'm used to being like, hey, what's your kids up to? Or what'd y'all do this weekend, you know? And he's like, okay, what, what do I start with? What do I say? And he said, so the very first thing that I thought of is, so how long have you been in here? I was like, well, that was a great start, you know? Um, and so that's what he leads with. He's like, well, well, how long have you guys been in here? And he's like, well, I thought I could redeem myself with the follow-up question after they each shared um, this one guy said, well, I've been here for this long. And I said, well, how long are you, is it going to be till you get out? And, and so they went around the table, and each one of them shared when it is that they're going to get out of prison. And then this one guy, he said, mentioned that he's going to get out of prison in two weeks. And he said, when I heard that he said two weeks, my response is exactly what your response probably would be. He said, I asked, well, are you excited? What do you think his answer was? No. Yeah, I see a lot of people shaking their heads, and you're exactly right. And the reason why he said, no, he's not excited, he said, I've been out of prison before, and I failed. They've let me out of these doors two or three times, and, and every time I, I go back to the other thing, I, I just don't feel like I have what it takes. I, I want you to see, in your life, there are so many of those little moments that, that breed those moments of insecurity one of those, I'll go ahead and tell you, is having children. Nothing makes you feel more insecure at times than children. My, mine dates back to the day our first son was, our first child was born. No better way to put it, I was awkward around kids before I had kids. I didn't know what to do, what kind of things. I'm like, you know, hey, buddy, did you, did you watch the news tonight? Like, I didn't know what to say to get conversation going. And so then... The very first diaper I changed was Cruz Itzens. That's it. And so he was born, and he came out, y'all. He was screaming so loud that you could see that little thing in the back of his throat dangling. And so the doctor takes him to that little station, is washing him off, and, and he cleans him off, and then he hands me this, this screaming child. And, and I was like, no, you take it. Like, who thinks it's a good idea for me to raise somebody, another human, when I have my own struggles, I will go ahead and tell you, at that moment, I felt incredibly insecure. Uh, maybe for some of you is that, like at work, when you see people by the water cooler and, and they're getting a drink, you just assume when they're talking, they're, they're talking about you. Or, or maybe for some of you, what it is, is something as simple as you send someone a text. And because of technology today, you can find out if they've read it or not. And so it says read. And you know they've read it or they've seen that Facebook message and they didn't reply. And you even maybe got the bubbles, you know what I'm talking about? And, and you're like, did they disappear? What happened? I've got nothing back. And so then you start to think, well, was it something I said? Did I say something the other day? And, and there's all these little moments. I'll tell you another one, comparison. Like you get online and you look at other people's highlight reels and you compare them to your behind the scenes. And what you felt good about, all of a sudden, you don't feel so secure about. I told Madison a few weeks ago that I remember when I took 
Lorien out for our normal date, which is we like to go to an Italian restaurant or sushi. And after that, we go to Books A Million or Barnes and Noble and just walk around. Uh, we don't buy anything, but we just look. Um, and that's a fun date for us. So then I, I go home and I get on social media and the best man at my wedding has taken his wife to Tahiti and they're eating lobster on a beach. And so all of a sudden, you know, I don't feel so good about the all you can eat soup, salad and breadsticks when I see something like that. And, and that com comparison can kill the contentment that at one time I had. There's so many moments of insecurity and here's why I point all of those out is what you choose to do next with that insecurity, if you're not careful, it can lead to idolatry. You can look to something else, you can look to someone, you can look to an event, you can look towards anything to fill the void that God was meant to fill. And so what I wanna to do tonight is, is look at an example of a group of people in a person that were very insecure. And when they didn't feel like God was enough, they did exactly what a lot of us do. But let's go back to that church in Ephesus. For them, when things weren't happening how they wanted, they turned to Artemis. And for us, well, we turned to a lot of things. We'll turn to status, to social media, relationships, sports, academics, jobs. These are all really good things, but sometimes we can make good things, God things, and, and we take a, a blessing that God has given us and kind of pervert it and make it a lowercase g, God. And so I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I want to give a little bit of context to Exodus 3. When you open up to Exodus 3, what you're going to find is that Moses was a very, very insecure guy. But please understand it wasn't that way for most of Moses' life. In fact, what we know about Moses is he, of course, was put in that basket and he was floated down the river and he was raised, yes, a little bit by a family member, but mainly in the Egyptian empire and he was adopted into that family and even though he was a Hebrew he became also an Egyptian and so growing up in the Egyptian household he had the keys to the kingdom he was elevated very high in command and the job he had that we can tell was one that other people would have wanted so he's got the job that everybody wanted he could go where everybody wanted he had all the meals he had all the nice clothes he had all the things then all of a sudden he sees a, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He intervenes, beats them, buries them in the sand, and then he runs. Realizing he did something bad, he flees, and he goes to his father-in-law Jethro's pasture, and he's working. Now, do you think that's what he had planned for his life? No. Some people call what he's experiencing failure to launch, that he's not where he thought he would be at this point in his life. And so in the middle of his insecurity, notice how God calls him, but also how he handles Moses' insecurities. Look in verse 1. It says, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel appeared to him in a flaming fire out of the midst of a bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'm going to turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burning. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, don't come near here. I want you to take your sandals off for the place that you're standing 
this is holy ground. And he said, I am the Lord God of your fa the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said to this, I love this, he said, I have seen the affliction of my people, those that are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. I love this because there's a lot of people in our lives that might see stuff, um, that hear stuff, and there's a lot of people that know stuff. But they don't have the ability to do what he's about to do is come down and deliver. He says, see, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, but I'm coming down in order to bring something up. I want to bring them up out of a land to a, a good land, a broad land that's flowing with milk and honey. And then if you come down to verse 10, he gets personal with Moses. He says, see, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you are going to be the one to bring the people out, the children of Israel. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you, that you have been brought and you have been sent to bring the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Now, what's interesting is God shows up in a burning bush. And by the way, if a burning bush is talking to you, you like Moses would turn away or you would run, this bush starts talking to him. And in his insecurities, he calls him to a task and says, Hey, listen, I've seen, I've heard, and I know what my people are going through. I'm coming down there in order to bring them to a better place, and you're going to be the one to do it. And then Moses' first response was what? Well, who am I? Now, if, if I'm God, and I'm kind of tracking with what he's saying here, he's like, wait, hold on a second. When has this conversation been about you, buddy? Like, I didn't ask for your resume. I just told you who I am. Like, you remember what I did for Abraham, right? When they laughed that, that I, I couldn't provide a child, and Isaac and all the difficulties he and his family went through and the patience I showed with him and Jacob, oh man, and all of his kids and how messed up they were. Like, that is who I am. It's interesting that Moses doesn't feel like he can do it because he's only focused on who? Himself. And God answers him in a very unique way. In fact, if you continue to read in the text, what I love about God in the middle of Moses' insecurities, he does not do what a lot of times people like to make God out to be. Like the Bible is about self-actualization or the Bible's about me. Let me make it clear. The Bible is about God. And that's good news. And the reason why it's good news is he doesn't come to Moses and say, listen, buddy, you said, like, why me? Well, here's what I want you to do every morning and every day at noon and every night. I want you to look into the mirror and I want you to say, you are kind, you are smart, you're important. Like, I want you to pump yourself up and, and you to know that I see something special in you. That's not what he does. He doesn't at all focus on Moses' resume. He focuses on his resume. See, Moses has an issue that we've all had, and it's this, that when you've messed up, when you haven't been the mom that you want to be, when you haven't been the co-worker you want to be, when you haven't been the child that you want to be, or maybe what it's, has happened is you've heard what people have said about you, 
And you can hear something for so long that you start to believe those things. And, and what happens is, is, is that just like Moses, he was carrying around a, a lot of insecurities from previous failures because in his mind, here's the labels he's hearing. I'm a murderer. I'm living with my father-in-law. And, and I don't have what it takes. And, and the danger of labels is that you can hear a label for so long that if you're not careful, not only will it uh, define your past, but if you let it and don't process it correctly, it's, it's going to determine your future too. And so that's why I love how God shifts the focus for him and says, no, no, this is not about you. This is, this is not ab about what you can do, but this is what I can do through you. See, our confidence and our courage to be what God wants us to be is not coming from us trying to discover a, a better Andrew or something better about myself or even tapping into my potential, but it comes from seeing how big and powerful our God is. Y'all might remember from your days in school this name, Nicholas Copernicus. Does anybody remember that? Um, very interesting name, by the way, but he was the guy that everybody thought was nuts because he believed that the sun was the center of the universe. It's because for years, everybody thought what was? The earth. They thought the earth was the center of the universe. So they said, Nicholas, man, you've lost your mind. See, because do you not see what we see? Like we're looking out right now and we've gotten our telescopes out and we can see things that go around us. We see the stars and we see the moon and while where we're looking, buddy, everything revolves around us. And they thought he was crazy, but then the more they studied it, they realized this guy's not crazy. He knows exactly what he's talking about because the earth is so small, it does not have the gravity to hold every single thing together, but the sun does. And, and the reason why I say that is where we stand in our lives, like at, at your home, in your job, doesn't it feel at times, and I think Satan wants us to feel this, like everything revolves around us? That if we were to get our proverbial you know, telescopes out, it's like, well, see them, you know, this is a, about me, because why? We, we think about things in that way. But just like Moses, we have to get to a point where we eventually understand, just like the earth, we don't have the gravity to hold stuff together, but the sun does. And so that's why in the middle of his insecurity, he's trying to shift his focus. And, and we don't have time tonight to go through the text, but every single time Moses says, well, this is why I can't do it. He doesn't say, no, you can because of this. He says, no, here's what I want you to tell them, that if they have any questions whatsoever, tell them this, I am. Now, when I was a kid and I would hear that phrase used, it, it baffled me a little bit and confused me because I'm used to hearing I am this or they are that. And I'm used to hearing specifics. And I, I, I remember hearing this in, in, you know, when they would do the flannel board classes and they would use the phrase, God said I am. And I'm like, you are what? That's just very, like, very vague. Can you, can you be a little more specific? He's like, no, no, I am. You are what? And he's like, yeah, that's the point. Like, I, I'm all the things. Like to the church in Ephesus that you're thinking, well, this is not happening on our timeline and how we want it to happen. He's like, I am. And, and things in my family aren't going how they should be. Like, what am I going to do? Are you going to trust in my provision? Because I, I am. And, and like, I'm, I'm going to the temple of Artemis and, and it's really easy to see all these things that are going to be easily, you know, pulling me in this direction. 
what do I do? I'm present there. I am. He said, I am all of these things. See, the reason why I am is going to matter a lot for Moses to hear is that he's about to lead a group of people that he was raised near. See, in Egypt, similar to Ephesus, they had their own gods, but they had ten of them. And and these ten gods that they had, guess what they corresponded to? Their distrust. Their fears. There was a God for all the things that the Egyptians needed, but by the way, we fast forward and we eventually find out that all those ten plagues that God brought, of course, they answered every single one of those things that those gods were not. So when he says to him, I am, he's letting him know, okay, when you, when you get into Pharaoh's courts or when you go to God's people and, and they start to have questions, just tell them, Yahweh, the I am has sent you. Now, Yahweh is written sometimes like this, four letters. Sometimes it's written with six. Um, you'll sometimes see an A or an E added. And the reason why the A and the E are added is A represents Adonai, which is Lord, and E represents Elohim, which is God. It's it's us in our best attempt to describe him. He's just saying, I'm trying to put it down in your terms so they will get something out of this. The best I've got is Yahweh. So tell them that God, Lord, has, has sent. So anytime they have questions to remember that, now some of you might have heard this before, that Yahweh is one of the most difficult words to say. Because technically in in Hebrew, the Y and the H and the W and the H are not really words, they're sounds. In a lot of Hebrews, the way they take these sounds is Yah was the sound of inhaling and exhaling was the YH. And so when he says, I am Yahweh, they're thinking, oh, so you're everything I breathe in and you're everything that I breathe out? And isn't that interesting because in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says there's one God, there's one Father, there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one faith, he says this. Here's what he tells us about God. He's in all, he's through all, and he's over all. So when you're going to school, and you breathe in as you walk in and you're not certain how people might treat you, he's saying, I'm in that. And, and when you're about to answer a, 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 a big phone call from work or you're about to have a hard conversation with your child and you're inhaling and you're exhaling, he's saying, I am in all of that. He's in all, he's through all, he's a God over all. He's trying to let a group of people just like the people in Ephesus and just like us today I'm in every single moment. I'm present if you see me. My provision is there if you look. But you just have to understand that the world doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around me. So what God does is he begins to tell Moses several things. He's like, well, okay, here's what. You're just going to use what's in your hand. This, the staff. Yeah, you're going to use that. And and I'm going to make everything happen. See, what he's doing with Moses is to help him deal with his insecurities, he's shifting the focus from the insecurity of me, the sendee, to the sendor, God. See, there's, ooh, I don't know what just happened. That was not your fault, user error right here. Let's see, I'll just go back. All right. 
right after the children of Israel get delivered from Egypt, in one of the most memorable moments in all of Scripture, God meets Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And, and at the top of Mount Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments. And would you know it, the first three have to do with what? God's. Idolatry. Well, it's partly because God is God and he knows the moment that Moses is about to come down this mountain, guess what they're doing? They're worshiping a cow. But also he knows what he knows about us is that it's very easy for us to worship the right God sometimes the wrong way, but it's also very easy sometimes to make God into what we want him to be. And that can be dangerous. See, for me growing up, I would read those first two you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall make no graven images. And I was like, is that a repeat? Those sound very similar. Then you get to the third one, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What's the difference between the first and the second one? Well, the first one is broken when we worship the wrong God. But the second one is when we worship the right God in the wrong way. And what I mean by that is, is that it's... it's Anytime we try to define God and to take him to be what we need him or want him to be, that's what was happening to Ephesus. And when we do that, we limit him. When I was in middle school, my dad was the student activities director at Faulkner. Basically, he was like the youth minister for Faulkner. Um, he, he took him on all these trips. And, and Dad told me, he's like, listen, once you get 13, you can go on the whitewater rafting trip with us. And I was ecstatic. I've always wanted to do that because you had to be 13 to go whitewater rafting. And so when he took them, it was in the spring. And I, I don't, if you've ever gone to the Ocoee River, even in the summer, what do you know about the temperature of that water? It's cold. So imagine going in March. It's freezing. And so... You go to this place where they kind of show you how to, to raft and to paddle down the river. And the guy told us that that was going to be guiding each of the boats down the river. He said, each and every one of you are going to need to pick a wetsuit uh, because it's so cold. And so they had this whole line of, of wetsuits. And so because I was just there, I wasn't a college student, but I was there because my dad was leading the trip. I got in line, but I got the very end of the line which was not wise because what ended up happening was I got the very end of that line and we get to the point in the line where there is like one or two wet suits left. There is a youth medium and a youth small. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten to like a wet suit that's even three times the normal size of what you wear. They are very hard to get into. And so I was small, okay? But I wasn't youth medium, wetsuit small. And so I'm standing there, and they're all in their wetsuits, and I'm looking at that, and I'm looking at them, and they're like, Andrew, come on, we can get you in there. It'll be hilarious. And, and so that was kind of one of those moments we all go through where you know people aren't laughing with you but at you kind of thing. And I, but I, I was too uh, enamored with being around college students to know the difference. So I was like, yeah, sounds great. And so... I have like five or six students working together trying to shove me into this wetsuit and I'm getting to a point where it's not going to happen. They're like, no, we're going to make it work. And I'm like, okay. And like, they're, so they're zipping. And so the reason why I say that is when I got done, like you get on this school bus to go there and I am walking into that school bus like this, can't bend my limbs. And I tried to get my mom, by the way, to look in her attic to find this picture, couldn't find it. 
but we have a picture of me in that boat and I'm basically like this, stiff, holding a paddle in my hand, but I'm so tight that I can't paddle. I know it's a silly illustration, but I think a lot of times we do the same thing to God. We try to put him in a child's youth medium wetsuit and then we expect him to do something. We try to bring him down to make him just a little bit smarter than the smartest person we know. To make him out to be this God that's a little stronger than the strongest person we know. A little bit more in tune than the most in tune person that we know. And what we do is we only know our four-dimensional time and space and we try to bring God so much down to our level then we expect something big out of him. He's like, no, that's not the way it works. I am. I'm all, I bust through what, what you think me to be and it's so important that we don't try to bring him down and make him to what we need him to be, to let him be who he is. And, and that's why that third commandment, in a way, I, it, it kind of helps define the rest of them, which is to not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, I used to only think that that meant, like if you stub your toe saying God's name or using it very flippantly, and it does include that, but the way it's actually originally written is don't take. So it's not say, but take. How do you take God? So he's actually saying to Moses that if you take me to be small, then you've taken me in vain. That if you don't take me to be able to do something in Egypt, then you've taken me in vain. And if you don't take me to be able to provide Ephesus for your fields, and if you don't take me, Ephesus, to be able to provide for your family, if you don't take me, Buford, to be able to lead your family, if you don't take me to be your true provision, to be your presence, then you've taken me in vain. I guess what I'm saying is maybe do we take the Lord's name in vain more than we realize? And so he's saying, no, I'm going to be all that I, I need to be. So here's what happens. God gives these commandments. And then we get to Exodus 32, and we're going get, to get there through there, this real quickly. Um, Kyle asked me how long I preached. I said 30 minutes, so I started out with a lie. So I'm sorry, Kyle. All right. So he has just received the Ten Commandments. In verse 30, uh, chapter 32, it says this. When the people saw that Moses delayed. Does that sound familiar to the people maybe in Ephesus? Where's our rain? Where's my family? When the people saw that he wasn't there, he hadn't come down yet from the mountain, the people gathered for themselves together to Aaron and said, Hey, make us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So we go through verses 2 through 5. Aaron takes the jewelry that they have just gotten that God gave them from Egypt, and they melt it down and make it into a god. But notice what they say. That sounds just like Ephesus. It sounds just like us. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation. Well, tomorrow we're going to still feast to the Lord. There's not much difference between Exodus and Ephesus, Ephesus is there. But we're still going to worship God tomorrow. But today is to this God. In verse 7, God gives Moses a little tap on the shoulder and says, uh, You better go down there. Why do I need to go down there? Um, well, you'll see. And you know what's really interesting in verse 7? Moses does what my wife does um, when I come home and the kids have been acting bad. 
go down for your people. Now, these, these are God's people. And so anytime somebody says, it's, like I said, my wife, there's been times I've come home, she's like, you will not believe what your children did. I'm like, wait, I'm, I'm not mistaken. You were there when they were born, you know? But like, he's, he does the your people thing, so you know they're in trouble. He said, look what your people have done. Moses' anger was so bad, it goes on to say in verse 19, he threw down the tablets. He took the calf, burned it, made it into powder, and made the people drink it. And, and then look at Aaron giving the worst excuse, I think, in all of Scripture. He says, well, you know, you, you know the people. You know how they are. Their, their eyes are set on evil. And then verse 24, he says, again, this is the worst excuse part. I just threw it in the fire, and out came a calf. Like, really, like, you just, you know, like, that, that's how quickly that happened. The reason why I want to point that out is, is I want us to see the danger of what we choose to do next with those insecurities is so incredibly important. Because just like I shared at the very beginning, what you choose to do next with that insecurity that's in your life, it, it can lead to idolatry. So for them, it's just like us. Counterfeit gods, they do three things. Number one, they correspond to our fears. And they grow out of an area where we don't trust God. Um, there was a family that I, I counseled with before, and they, they had completely disconnected from the church. They had disconnected from everything. Um, they, their child was involved in an activity that is a very good activity, one that I enjoyed a lot growing up, but it became like their focus of everything they did. And we never saw them. Their kids were having certain issues and, and, the, and just a lot of stuff was happening. And we kept trying to figure out like, what's going on? What happened? What caused this? We went from this to this. It was two years of conversations and two years of talking, and we eventually got to the point and realized they were having marriage problems. But this activity, what it was doing was it was keeping them busy. They were doing a lot of things. It was keeping a distraction from what? The true issue that they had. And so it, for them, became a God that a lot of our gods, they correspond to our fears. For them, it was waiting. Like, where is God? Where is Moses? We don't have any, but we got to create something because God isn't showing up how we want him to. So we have to identify where is it that maybe we're lacking trust? What is it really that we fear? Because sometimes it's not really about the God, but it's about the insecurity behind the God. The other thing counterfeit gods do is they corrupt you spiritually. I can't get into it, not in this audience. But when Moses goes down off that mountain and sees what the people are doing, it's gross. They are participating in a lot of sin when he comes down that mountain. That's what false gods do to you. They corrupt you. But let me all tell you what they also do. They make you sick. Did you read what it said? That he took that God, put it down into powder, and made them what? To drink it. That's exactly what a false god will do. But also they'll disappoint you in a big way. When I worked with... Um, college students at Faulkner, one of the conversations I had with them a lot and is, is a conversation I had when I was a college student is, you know, I'm looking for that person, you know, to quote unquote complete me. And um, it took me a while to figure this out, but I, I would tell them and I had to tell myself that person doesn't exist. We sometimes give keys to human beings that they have no business holding. 
And when they do not come through because they're not God, um, we demonize them. Isn't that interesting that we oftentimes, whatever it is that we idolize, we eventually demonize because it never comes through. It's not God. And so maybe for some of you in the message tonight, what what you're going to want to do with it is you're going to want to take back the keys that you've been given social media. You're going to want to start taking the keys that you've been given relationships and give those back to God, or maybe it's sports, maybe it's your job, maybe it's an academic. I don't know what it is. And so how do we enjoy the things that God has given us without worshiping it? Well, I think we've got to be up front. Be up front about that temptation and the trial. And by the way, Sunday morning we're going to talk about the difference between the temptation and the trial. Number two is to understand that God put idolatry off limits because it hurts people. And and even if you look at your family and maybe look at some of the issues you might be having, I heard this statement growing up, and it is so true. Hurt people do what? Hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. That's why God puts it off limits. Because it's not just hurting you, but it's hurting other people. But also invite the Lord to be a part of the things that you enjoy. So for Ephesus, it was Artemis. For us, it might be status. It might be social media. It might be relationships, sports, academics, a job. I don't know what it is. But maybe for you tonight that you have been putting something in the place that God is supposed to be. Identify that insecurity. And like I said, what you choose to do next, where you choose to run, what you tend to focus on next is what's going to lead you into that idolatry. There's one Lord. He's in all, he's through all, and he's above all. And if you need prayers tonight to to put God in the place that he needs to be, or maybe you've never made that decision to put on Christ in baptism, I pray that you'll do that tonight.